I was 15 years old. I was in Paris, where I grew up. I was lying on my bed. The Beach Boys were singing loud in my ears, and I remember thinking, all is well. The week before, I must have seen on the news that women were marching for free abortion in Paris. And remember telling myself that I was happy that women were doing the job, so I didn't have to do it. I thought with certainty, thanks to them, I'll be able to get married, have children in peace, do a little cooking, and just be happy. And so, of course now, more than 15 years later, I'm thinking, where did all go wrong? When did I let go of my ideal, my quiet life plan, the one that fits so well with what society expected of me? At what point did I say to myself, I'm going to fight too? To be honest, I don't know when it was. What I do know is that today, I'm 33 and I'm a feminist activist. And that a life of marriage, plus children, plus cooking, plus polishing the silver before the husband comes home is no longer an ideal. On the contrary, I'm busy from morning to night with questions related to feminism. And one of these questions is, in order to win, to bring about the society I dream of, how radical do I need to be? This is a question that has been nagging at me, particularly because my activism also involves being an entrepreneur. So it's a job for which I'm paid. A little over six years ago, I created a media company that produces feminist newsletters. And I was instantly faced with economic and pragmatic dilemmas in order to keep my company alive. And even today, especially today, I ask myself if it's possible to be a good feminist while making these compromises. Is it possible to be an entrepreneur and a radical? Shouldn't I refuse to compromise, be as radical as possible? And what does it even mean to be a radical activist? a researcher who has reflected a lot on her own radicalism, the philosopher Geneviève Fraisse. She was also a member of the European Parliament from 1999 to 2004. Do you remember her, Geneviève Fraisse? She's the French academic who explained in episode one why it is so important to study the history of women and feminism in order to really change society. Well, according to her, we have to be both radical and reformist. A radical, which means changing the whole society, and a reformist, which means improving the laws that already exist. Because we will never achieve a feminist society if our only goal is to change the world. Change worlds. Worlds. I made the mistake again. It's about changing worlds. Not changing the world, but changing worlds entirely. According to her, we shouldn't try to change the world, but we should try to create an entirely new, different one. Because to change the world would be to accept the values on which it is based. Changing the world means, for example, granting women the right to vote or introducing quotas for female representation. But changing worlds would mean no longer needing quotas to ensure that women are present in the highest levels of government, for instance, because public policies would have been put in place to ensure that women were as valued as men from birth. Changing worlds would mean starting a revolution, the feminist revolution. It would mean accepting profound changes in society, changes in structure, going back to the roots of our system and revising the basics. So changing worlds goes much further than proposing a reform. 
But let's be honest, it's always easier to start with what exists and try to develop it. You take what you have and you try to reform it. On the other hand, we're limited by the rules of the political system in which we operate. The philosopher Geneviève Fraisse told me that when she was a member of the European Parliament, she often had to put aside her radical ideas to support certain reforms. She had to compromise in order to see things move, even if only a little. Even today, she makes herself useful as a feminist by attacking the small nuts and bolts of the big patriarchal machine. For example, by writing about the place of women in history. I work the machine from the inside, through my writing. I don't create alternatives, as many feminists have done and continue to do, and they have my admiration. But I've chosen another way of doing things, which is basically removing the screws. I'm in the engine room, and I'm removing the screws. I'm not on the bridge shouting about changing the direction of the boat. I'm unscrewing the screws, and then I'm going to put them back in a different way. I'm uh, dismantling the plumbing. I'm undoing the nuts and bolts of the history of art and how women got in and how they changed things. It's a change of worlds, but that hasn't changed the world. This is where the question of radicality comes in. It comes from the Latin radicalis, which means root. Therefore, it implies going back to the root of a problem with the aim of solving it effectively. But is it possible to be a radical when radicality is so quickly criticized and perceived as extremism? When the slightest movement is considered too radical by society? It's just like the word feminist a few decades ago. This is why Rebecca West, a 20th century novelist, said, I myself have never been able to find out precisely what feminism is. I only know that people call me a feminist whenever I express sentiments that differentiate myself from a doormat. The word feminist is less often used as an insult today, but the word radical? Mm, that one is not easy. But what exactly is radicality? The short version is wanting to change the world. And the longer version is explained by American non-binary writer and artist, Alok Van Minen. I'm non-binary, which means it's not just that I'm challenging the binary between male, female, man, woman, but between us and them. The reason you don't fight for me is because you're not fighting for yourself fully. And any movement that's trying to emancipate men from the shackles of heteropatriarchy or emancipate women from traditional gender ideology has to have trans and non-binary people at the forefront because we are actually the most honest. We're tracing the root. Where do these ideas of manhood and womanhood come from? They come from a binary structure. And so that's why people like me who are visibly gender nonconforming, who are both feminine and masculine and none of the above, we experience the brunt of all of these collective fantasies that were created that are killing other people, that are also killing us. It just looks different. Alok van Menen uses the word structure and the word root. The radicality culminates in the questioning of our frameworks of thinking. In this case, the fact that there are only two genders accepted by society, male and female. According to them, we can only change the world by accepting that gender is not binary, and by accepting that the contrast feminine-masculine is a cultural construction. We must rethink concepts that everyone accepts without question, such as the concept of men 
and women, to repair the foundations of society. It is tearing down an unstable and unsanitary house to start again on a new foundation, rather than exhausting oneself day after day filling in the cracks. So, working on an insanitary building or going back to the roots, this is not the very first thing you think about when you hear the term radicality. In the media, it's almost a dirty word. Because more often than not, when we think about radicalism, we use it as a synonym of extremism or violence. We imagine some kind of a pink brigade splitting bombs at the parliament or chasing men down the street with a pair of shears. I think the most extreme feminist I've ever heard of in that sense, that sense of physical violence, is someone called Emily Davidson. Emily Davidson was a British suffragette. On June 4th of 1913, she was one of the 500,000 spectators at the Epsom Derby, a famous horse race in England. On that day, she wanted to draw the world's attention to the issue of women's rights, a topic that was far from the headlines in the early 20th century. The horses were approaching at full speed. When suddenly Emily went under the safety barrier, she found herself on the track, intent on stopping the race, in order to attract the press and finally be heard. But at that moment, the jockey riding the horse Anma, which belonged to King George V, didn't go around the young woman, nor did he stop. To do so would risk losing the race. So the horse knocked the young woman down and trampled her as if she were nothing more than a twig underfoot. Emily Davidson died four days later from her injuries. So, is this what radicality is all about? Being trampled by a horse? Committing suicide for the feminist cause for the common good? Is it being violent towards others? Like the suffragettes who sabotaged electrical network and planted bombs in department stores in the 1900s? What about us? The feminists of today who march, divide slogans, and put up posters. Can we really claim to be radical when the only bombs we plan are on Twitter? For Rejane Senac, one cannot confuse violence with radicalism. It is not because you're violent that you're necessarily defending radical ideas. And you can be radical without being violent. The political academic puts it this way. Violence, why not? But there must be a reason. And when we ask ourselves the question of against whom we are being violent, against what and how, I find that sometimes it gets a bit out of control. There's also this idea that violence is the only form of radical militancy when it's not. Violence is not militancy in its purest form. For Réjeanne Sénac, Violence is not crucial to the feminist cause. However, she points out that nonviolence is sometimes discredited by some activists who find it naive. They say, yes, it's the naive ones who, or those ones are traitors because they, they are nonviolent, they are completely naive, where it's actually very difficult to remain nonviolent in the face of a violent system. It's very difficult to carry nonviolence with strength. This strength of nonviolence is not at all a naive strength. In feminist worlds, it's quite rare to hear someone justify violence. That's why I have such a vivid memory of meeting the Indian activist Vandana Shiva. It was during a launch in the Belleville district in Paris in the autumn of 2019 for the launch of one of her books, 
Regen Senak was also there. Vandana Shiva, she's an eco-feminist activist. She's famous for her activism in favor of peace, of biodiversity, of the right of people to self-determination, and for her non-violent stances. So, during this lunch, Regen Senak asked the activist about non-violence. I listened, and I heard Vandana Shiva explain without blinking that sometimes violence is inevitable. She explained that in order to overthrow a violent system like the patriarchy, she does understand that we may be forced to adopt its rules. As I leave the restaurant, I think to myself there are several ways of looking at this. Either I claim non-violence, but then I must accept that I am not fighting on equal terms with the system I want to overthrow. Or I tolerate certain forms of violence because the ends justify the means, right? But then it will be using the same weapons as the executioners. Or, as with gender, we have to get out of the violence-non-violence binary. On YouTube, one person really helped me understand this. Natalie Wynn. She's an American political analyst, and she's the creator of the ContraPoints channel on YouTube. She defines herself as a trans woman. And for her, it is first and foremost the radicality of the ideas that count, more than the radicality of the means to implement our ideas. In terms of, like, always having had the correct ideas and always have... I mean, the, 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 what it means to be radical is to have, is to have ideas that are drastically out of sync with the society that you're in, right? Or that are drastically sort of opposed to the normative, uh, the norms of your own society. And so... In the case of feminism, it's going to be the dismantling of patriarchy, like the redefinition of gender frameworks, for example. For anti-capitalist activists, the subject is degrowth, the idea of abandoning the objective of economic growth and letting go of our compulsive consumer impulses. These are two examples of radical struggles in the sense that they challenge values that are deeply rooted in the implicit and explicit codes of our society. This is what Natalie Wynn, who you just heard, is saying. Our ideas make us radical. Like non-binary artist Alok van Menen, Natalie Wynn said that being a radical feminist is about going back to the roots of our society, of our history. It means affirming that the patriarchy the social organization based on the authority of men, where the masculine is considered universal, is not inherent to all human society, and that we no longer want it. Well, now that we've reassured ourselves that it's possible to be a radical without planting any bombs, what do we do? What do we do in practice? How do we apply this radicality to our daily lives and to our daily feminism? I would like to call once again on Rejane Senac. She is the political academic who said that we should not confuse radicalism with violence. For her, once we agree to rethink the foundations, before moving on to the practical, the most important thing is to understand the causes. So if I go back to using the house metaphor, it's why is the house unstable? Why is the house unhealthy? Where does the mold come from? The leaks, the cracks? The search for causes is what Réjeanne Sénat calls political radicality. Political radicality is also the idea that we need to make injustices visible, but we can only deconstruct them if we work on their roots. So we can agree to make injustices visible, but the important thing is to address the roots And the roots are our foundations, especially the political ones. In order to change society, 
We need to look deeper. Why do these injustices exist? Where does the patriarchy come from? Researchers have been proposing solutions for years. One of them is that the patriarchy appeared at the end of the Neolithic period, around 4000 BC, with the end of nomadism and the need to protect properties and goods. This task was automatically attributed to men because of their greater average muscle mass, especially on the upper body. This is what is known as sexual dimorphism, all the biological differences between males and females of the same species. And yes, this exists among all animals, including humans. If we go back to what Rejan Senac says, exercising political radicality means first and foremost, thinking. To find out about the reasons for the female condition. This is in line with Geneviève Fraisse's point about the need for historicity, giving women back their place and their memory in history. It allows us to reveal the causes of injustice, to uproot them, to look at the world differently than what we're being taught. So how about we take some action? Acknowledging you're out of step with the society you live in allows not only for radical thinking, but also for truly radical mobilization, rather than mobilization that looks like a marketing campaign. So, what is radical mobilization without bombs and without being run over by a king's horse? It is, for example, to do as Lysistrata, the heroine of the eponymous play by the great playwright Aristophanes. This young Athenian woman suggests to Peloponnese women that they go on a sex strike to force the lovers and husbands to end the war. The war in the Peloponnese. That's theater, all right. But the idea has been used in real life many times. Finally, we are in the limelight. When men failed to end 14 years of civil war in Liberia, Lema Bowie rallied the women of her nation to stop it. In Nigeria, for instance, in 2003, Nobel Peace Prize winner Lima Gbowie launched a sex strike to get women represented in the warlord's table to talk about the peace process. And we have arrived at the decision that, yes, a sex boycott can be able to start us having a conversation around the leadership and reform that we want in this country. In Kenya in 2009, women organized a sex strike to force the president and the prime minister, who were at the time angry at one another, to find concrete solutions to eradicate poverty and corruption. The activists even offered financial compensation to sex workers. In 2012, in Togo, the same thing happened again. Women went on a sex strike to remind the then-president that their civil rights are not optional. But the worst thing, or the best, I'm not sure, is that all of these strikes actually worked. Obviously, radical mobilization does not only involve suicides or sex strikes. Regent Senex suggests something else, paying attention to words. Because radical mobilization also goes to the root of language. And among all of the words of the French language, she took issue with three of them. Liberty, equality, fraternity, and especially the last of the three. When I was at the High Council for Gender Equality, I was president of the Gender Equality Commission, and we worked on a constitutional reform. I entered the debate, and I talked about it when we submitted our report to the president of the National Assembly and the Senate. 
at the time, to change the motto, to discuss our motto. It is not superfluous to discuss our national motto, that which makes up our collective identity. I told you that she was a political academic, but Réjeanne Sénac is also a star. The Beyoncé of Equal Pay, the Mel Streep of political science, the Céline of deconstruction. She's a research director at the French National Center for Scientific Research, and she was the president of the Parity Commission of the High Council for Equality Between Women and Men. In 2015, as president of this commission, she worked on a reform of the French Constitution. Would the motto of the French Republic have a place in a feminist society? For her, there are two values that do not pose a problem. And then, there's the third. Bah, c'est pas neutre en termes de genre. On commence à, à, à discuter encore sur fraternité aussi. Là, uh, je suis dans, I am not being politically correct at all. When I say the word fraternity as a term that has never been and will never be neutral, I, I may sound like I'm questioning one of our foundations. And so you had suggested... Adelphity. Adelphity is actually a term used by many feminists, a Greek term that means children of the same mother, regardless of gender, whereas fraternity designates boys. I mean, if we had said liberty, equality, sisterhood, everyone would understand that sisterhood excludes certain people. Being aware of the words we use prevents us from making them meaningless, from forgetting what we're aiming for with the feminist fight, from losing sight of our goals. In this case, the primary goal of the radical feminist mobilization is equality. For me, this is the core value of feminism. And what is really extremely surprising is that this word hardly exists in feminist worlds. You almost never hear it. And I asked Réjeanne Sénac if she knew why. As Danielle Ben Saïd says, I said it at the end, by the way, I think it's a broken word. You know when you say a word lots of times in a row, like sofa, 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 sofa. So after a while, you feel like it doesn't make any sense anymore. It's what we call semantic satiation. Well, that's what happened with the world equality. We heard it too much to say everything and nothing. And in the end, it lost its meaning. For Réjeanne Sénac, the word equality is broken, worn out, because it has been used wrongly by powerful men who saw no advantage in being the equals of women. Some use it, self-appropriate it, claim it as powerful, as a freedom of non-domination. But many say that it's not possible to move towards a new world, a concrete utopia by using, to quote Audre Lorde, the master's tools. According to the American feminist Audre Lorde, the master is the dominant, the powerful men who have used the word equality over the centuries, and the master's tool is the word equality. But for Réjeanne Sénac, it is possible to destroy the master's house with the master's tools. We can use violence like the word equality, on the condition that we reappropriate these tools, that we know how to use them and against whom we to use them. We can use violence like the word equality, on the condition that we reappropriate these tools, that we know how to use them and against whom we use them. Firstly, because this is our main goal, equality. And secondly, 
because it is a very useful word to explain that no, we do not want war, nor we do want revenge on the conservatives. We don't want to become superior. We want equality between genders, and we have those who do not wish to define themselves by gender. So yes, if we want to maintain radical feminist thinking and get rid of the patriarchy in the long term, we need to learn to use the word proudly again. Once we have established that we have to be radical, how can we be radical all the time in a world that is not? How can we avoid compromising our true selves? Does it matter if we're not radical all the time? For example, is it okay to use the tools of capitalism, like violence and the word equality, if they're used correctly? On a very personal note, is it okay to have a business in a capitalist world while promoting feminism? As we saw a few minutes ago, the patriarchy was most likely born out of the need to protect the private property, resources, and capital of each family unit. Even today, these are the foundation of our capitalist system. So at first, the capitalist system and a feminist society do not seem very compatible. Yet, I'm trying to make them so. The newsletter that I write, Les Glorieuses, is actually produced by a company I created, Gloria Media. How can radical ideas and a capitalist world coexist? Not launching your own business, perhaps? But in such a case, it also means not having the financial autonomy that allows you to communicate the ideas of your choice. I think you can be radical in your ideas, but you still have to learn to work with the system you find yourself in. In the capitalist system, if you want to spread ideas on a large scale, you have to create a project that is influential and well-known enough to allow it. And to be influential and well-known, you need several things. First, you need talented writers. Second, you need money to pay those talented writers. Third, you need experts who promote those writers and their ideas. Fourth, money to pay those experts who promote those writers and their ideas. Do you see what I'm getting at? Money. A vicious circle. I became completely stressed about money. Or as they say on LinkedIn, running my business. To become a business leader. That's what I chose. But it was not an obvious choice. People criticisms of me are justified in view of my commitment. Yes, I regularly ask myself whether the very existence of this company, Gloria Media, and my radical ideas are compatible. This is Sophie's choice, honestly. In their book, Joyful Militancy, feminist researcher Carla Berkman and her co-author Nick Montgomery explained that there's a climate of rigid radicalism in the activist world. This climate, they argue, makes us feel fearful, hesitant. Is it really radical to condemn other people's mistakes? Or is such a political radicality desirable? And above all, is it an effective way to achieve a feminist society? The American political intellectual, Natalie Wynn, that we heard earlier, well, she has already been subjected to harsh criticism from her own community. So I put the question to her. Is it possible to be a radical feminist without sinking into a rigid radicalism where you count the mistakes of your fellow activists? Yes, I think that, well, there's different ways to be a radical. I think that this type of like 
digital Jacobinism that uh, has people like out for blood, uh, the norms of your own society. And so I should, no one is born a radical. No one is raised as, well, maybe some people born who are raised in communes or whatever, but um, uh, most people are not. And so I think it's, I think especially like, Oh, this habit of digging up something someone tweeted to a decade ago or something as a means to get them, right? <laughs> this is this is like there's something um well, I don't think that's I don't think there's anything radical about it. I mean this this is this is cop behavior, if anything. According to Wynne, it is this behavior that leads some activists to police their own peers. This is not constructive to feminist efforts. Natalie Wynne advocates for benevolent radicalism. I, I don't think that's the only way to be radical. Um, I, th- I, th- I think that there's, you know, you, you can you, you can include in radicalism a vision of radical compassion for other people that includes understanding the like, fundamentally flawed character that all of us have to some extent. None of us have perfectly clean records in terms of like always having had the correct ideas. There are many different causes being championed within activist communities. This can create internal opposition within the feminist movement. In this context, how can we fight effectively? How can we really take all points of view into account? I mean, I think that the only sensible thing to do is have a more pluralistic solution that sort of allows for the fact that people are different and that difference includes... I, I don't think we should I don't think we should be sort of... Um, have a totalitarian ideological conception of what people have to believe about this. I think we should understand that different people are going to experience gender in different ways. Um, and that some people will think of themselves as, 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 as sort of um, abstaining from gender or sort of not wanting to have any part in it. Um, some people will identify very intensely with their own uh, biological sex. Some people will uh, not identify with that at all. And, and, and I think that we have to expect that that diversity exists. So we welcome diversity. Because rigid radicalism is toxic for activists, since it fosters a climate of mistrust and fear. How can we feel comfortable speaking out when we're afraid of being canceled for misusing a word or a concept? And all of this criticism generates permanent guilt. For instance, if I love cooking for my family, am I necessarily submissive? If I do not care about not becoming the first woman to win three Nobel Prizes, am I a disgrace to the movement? And if I go to a woman's march with the additional goal in mind to reach my 10,000 daily steps, does that make me the least feminist person ever? The reality is that there's no one right way to be a radical, just as there's no one right way to be a feminist. And for Rejane Senac, being a feminist is not just about fighting against something. Of course, it's fighting against patriarchy, but it's also fighting for something. Some say it's just a movement that's against things. Yes, it's a movement that's against. But it's also very much for things as well. So in fact, for me, the answer is plural. And this is where Réjeanne Sénac talks about something very important for the first time. Fluid radicality. It's sort of the solution to our questions our method. 
Alors, la radicalité fluide, ça peut apparaître comme un oxymore. Fluid radicality can sound like an oxymoron, precisely because it's radical both in its diagnosis, its strength, its depth of critical analysis, but also in this capacity to admit that the answer is fluid and not contained within a neat box. Fluid radicality means being radical in what you say, not being afraid to denounce the powerful, and to propose something different. But it also means accepting diverging points of view, the plurality of fights within the same community, accepting that we can help each other instead of stepping on each other. So there is really this idea that radicality is also found in the acceptance of this discomforting thought, which is that the answer is the movement, its divergence. It's the acceptance of points of view that do not come from the same place, of answers that are diverse and that are fluid in the sense that they can also evolve. A few years ago, I was thinking, well, when are we going to have this revolution? I wanted to put the feminist glasses on everyone's eyes so everyone could actually understand. Now I'm thinking more, how do we design this society together? Because the idea is to find common ground so we can actually get there. And I've been told a lot, it won't be a bed of roses or grand triumphs, but there will be shared ground and commonalities that will create new landscapes. And within the concept of a shared garden, the idea is not to force the exchange. It's just to be open to realizing that we have converging interests. And why not decide to fight together on those grounds? Fluid radicality is giving yourself freedom in the way you implement your radicalism. Where before there were defined militant codes, petitions, marches, demands to public decision makers, today, the implementation of this radicalism becomes more diverse and fluid. For example, before, we had the principle of conversion of struggles. It expressed a desire to put aside our differences and align ourselves to move together forward by finding a consensus on the objectives of the revolution. Today, with fluid radicality, we accept that there will be no conversion of struggles, but that the specificity of each of the struggles will be accepted, and legitimized. We don't all align ourselves behind the same objective. This allows each group to retain the radicalism of its own struggle. It's partly thanks to fluid radicality that we can be radical in the long term. Even if I evolve in my thinking, it's okay to be radical in a different way. So fluid radicality, both in the ways of acting, depending on the people, and in the ways of acting as we move on in age and experience. Et c'est en avançant qu'on se rend compte que And it's as we progress that we realize we're walking on uneven ground, on rocky terrain, rocky precisely because we have moved forward by carving out different pathways without modifying the entire course. So what's the deal? Should we be radical or not? Of course we should. To create a new world, we need people who think and act completely differently from others. Revolutionaries who step outside the norm, who question gender, capitalism, and patriarchy. And while waiting for the revolution, and actually in order to actively prepare it, we must act. It starts by supporting reforms, because these are what will build the society of our dreams. Then, by fighting on several fronts at once, 
by accepting compromises, the diversity of struggles and points of view. And this is a radical commitment in a society that tends to polarize opinions that prevent us from building together. What we need is radical mobilization, without guilt or fear of doing or saying the wrong thing. It means learning to reinvent political action by multiplying feminist and radical movements. It means questioning what is considered universal, supporting the singularities and struggles of each individual. What we need are the shared gardens that Hiran Senak talks about, the benevolent radicality that Natalie Wynn talks about, the fluid radicality. What we need is a joyful radicality, and that's good, because that's the feminist tool we're going to discover in the next episode. Joy. I'm Rebecca Amselem, and you've just listened to the second episode of The Method, a co-production by Louis Media and Gloria Media. This documentary series was directed by Alexandra Candilonguet. I co-wrote it with Lena Coutreau in collaboration with Fanny Rue. Soukaina Cabal was editing and producing. The original music was composed by Clémentine Charuel and Julie Rue. Lola Piplo was the English voice of Geneviève Fraisse. Karima Sorel was the English voice of Réjeanne Sénac. Stephanie Williamson translated the text from French to English. If you're interested in this podcast, please talk about it around you. Thank you. Thank you.